Welcome, my friends, welcome to another edition of the Corbett Report. I am your host, James Corbett, podcasting to you, as always, from the sunny climes of western Japan on this 14th day of September, 2008. I'd like to welcome all my new listeners to the Corbett Report, and welcome back all my regular listeners. And I'd like to remind all listeners to visit CorbettReport.com for all of our previous episodes of this podcast, interviews, articles, and videos, as well as subscription feeds, so you can stay up to date with all of the Corbett Report updates. Secondly, I certainly hope that many of my listeners heeded the call from episode 54 of the Corbett Report to donate to the 9-11 First Responders Money Bomb organized by We Are Change and hosted at wearechange.org. If you haven't done so yet, please consider doing so. You'll be able to find the Money Bomb on the wearechange.org homepage, and rest assured there is still time to donate and to make a difference. And while you're there, why not make a contribution to We Are Change as well? And on the issue of contributions, I'd like to extend a heartfelt thank you to one listener who this week made the single largest contribution to our website yet through the chip-in account available at the homepage at CorbettReport.com. To that listener and to everyone who has so far contributed to our various chip-in events, thank you very much. Without you, we would not be able to continue broadcasting and expanding here at the Corbett Report. And now, without further ado, let's get to today's real news. Our first story this week comes from PropagandaMatrix.com, September 10th. 2008. Global poll. Less than half believe Al-Qaeda behind 9-11. A new global poll conducted across 17 countries has found that less than half of those surveyed believe Al-Qaeda was behind the 9-11 attacks, with a full 15% believing that the terrorist outrage was directly perpetrated by the U.S. government. On the eve of the 7th anniversary of 9-11, the poll underscores how a majority of people still do not buy the official story, despite numerous attempts to reinforce the explanation that 19 hijackers at the behest of Osama bin Laden were the culprits behind the plot. Overall, 46% of those surveyed believe the attacks were carried out by Al-Qaeda, 25% do not know who carried out the attacks, 15% state the U.S. government was behind the attacks, 7% blame Israel, and a further 7% blame other perpetrators. An October 2006 CBS New York Times poll found that a mere 16% of Americans thought the U.S. government was telling the truth about 9-11. A further 53% thought the White House was hiding something, and 28% said they were mostly lying. That's 81% who do not trust the official version of events, and 16% who do. Our second story comes to us from Infowars.net, September 11, 2008. Scientists. Unusual magnetic forces caused Twin Towers collapse. One article consisting of five short paragraphs in the London Independent informs us that on this 7th anniversary of 9-11, all the remaining unanswered questions about the collapse of the World Trade Center towers can be explained away. Yes, that's correct. Structural engineers, scientists, professors, Congress members, victims' families, first responders, intelligence officials, and all the other researchers out there who have poured over the collapse of the Twin Towers for the last 2,556.69539 days you may all stop reading, put down your pens, and turn off your computers, because Sergei Dudarev of the UK Atomic Energy Agency has all the answers. Mr. Dudarev can explain why jet fuel fires burning in isolated pockets for minutes caused two of the world's tallest steel buildings to completely collapse into their own footprints at freefall speed, pulverizing concrete and leaving flowing underground rivers of molten metal lasting for weeks. And the answer is... Unusual magnetic forces. Idiots! How could you not have worked it out? 
Our final story this week comes from PrisonPlanet.com, September 8th, 2008. Top Investor Fanny Freddie Bailout Serves Bunch of Crooks and Incompetence A leading investor has denounced the government's seizure of two of the nation's largest financial companies as madness and says the move will only serve to make the markets more volatile and see house prices continue to go down. In an interview with CNBC, Jim Rogers, CEO of Rogers Holdings, described the move by the Treasury to nationalize Fannie Mae and Freddie Mac as insanity. The Treasury has pledged to provide as much as $200 billion to the companies, replace their chief executives, and place them under a conservatorship, giving management control to their regulator, the Federal Housing Finance Agency, or FHFA. This is madness. This is insanity, Rogers said. They have more than doubled the American national debt in one weekend for a bunch of crooks and incompetence. I'm not quite sure why I or anybody else should be paying for this. America is more communist than China is right now, Rogers declared. You can see that this is welfare of the rich. It is socialism for the rich. It's just bailing out financial institutions, he added. Welcome to episode 55 of the Corbett Report. How to fix the economy. That the economy is in deep trouble needs almost no explanation, although today's final real news story should give an indication of the meltdown that is taking place in the global financial services sector. Now, we have gone through some of the underlying causes of this economic meltdown in previous episodes of this podcast. Regular listeners will remember them well, but for new listeners, please check out Episode 5, Episode 13, and Episode 30 of The Corbett Report. For more information, documentation, and links to documentaries detailing the underlying root causes of our current economic crisis. But perhaps to bring us up to speed, it would help to listen to a short documentary excerpt to help remind us of exactly what the underlying cause of our current financial crisis is, and that's the monetary system itself. And of course, it all goes back to the fundamental question, what is money? Listeners of episode 5 of the Corbett Report will remember, of course, that that is adequately explained from The Money Masters, an excellent documentary which I suggest all of my listeners go and buy from themoneymasters.com. But in that episode, I also mentioned another documentary called Money as Debt, which is a shorter, perhaps easier to understand, but nonetheless informative overview of the problem with money itself. So to bring us up to speed on what's happening in the economy, let's go back to the absolute fundamental question, what is money? And let's listen to an excerpt from the Money as Debt documentary. In the present, privately created bank credit is legally convertible to government-issued fiat currency, the dollars, loonies, and pounds we habitually think of as money. Fiat currency is money created by government fiat or decree, and legal tender laws declare that citizens must accept this fiat money as payment for debt or else the courts will not enforce the obligation. So now the question is, if governments and banks can both just create money, then how much money exists? In the past, the total amount of money in existence was limited to the actual physical quantities of whatever commodity was in use as money. For example, in order for new gold or silver money to be created, more gold or silver had to be found and dug out of the ground. In the present, money is literally created as debt. New money is created whenever anyone takes a loan from the bank. As a result, the total amount of money that can be created has only one real limit the total level of debt.
governments place an additional statutory limit on the creation of new money by enforcing rules known as fractional reserve requirements. Essentially arbitrary, fractional reserve requirements vary from country to country and from time to time. In the past, it was common to require banks to have at least $1 worth of real gold in the vault to back $10 worth of debt money created. Today, reserve requirement ratios no longer apply to the ratio of new money to gold on deposit, but merely to the ratio of new debt money to existing debt money on deposit in the bank. Today, a bank's reserves consist of two things. The amount of government-issued cash or equivalent that the bank has deposited with the central bank, plus the amount of already existing debt money the bank has on deposit. To illustrate this in a simple way, let's imagine that a new bank has just started up and has no depositors yet. However, the bank's investors have made a reserve deposit of $1,111.12 of existing cash money at the central bank. The required reserve ratio is 9 to 1. Step 1. The doors open and the new bank welcomes its first loan customer. He needs $10,000 to buy a car. At the 9 to 1 reserve ratio, the new bank's reserve at the central bank, also known as high-powered money, allows it to legally conjure into existence nine times that amount, or $10,000, on the basis of the borrower's pledge of debt. This $10,000 is not taken from anywhere. It's brand new money simply typed into the borrower's account as bank credit. The borrower then writes a check on that bank credit to buy the used car. Step 2. The seller then deposits this newly created $10,000 at her bank. Unlike the high-powered government money deposited at the central bank, this newly created credit money cannot be multiplied by the reserve ratio. Instead, it's divided by the reserve ratio. At a ratio of 9 to 1, a new loan of $9,000 can be created on the basis of the $10,000 deposit. Step 3. If that $9,000 is then deposited by a third party at the same bank that created it or at a different one, it becomes the legal basis for a third issue of bank credit, this time for the amount of $8,100. Like one of those Russian dolls where each layer contains a slightly smaller doll inside, each new deposit contains the potential for a slightly smaller loan in an infinitely decreasing series. Now, if the loan money created is not deposited at the bank, the process stops. That's the unpredictable part of the money creation mechanism. But more likely, at every step, the new money will be deposited at a bank, and the reserve ratio process can repeat itself over and over until almost $100,000 of brand new money has been created within the banking system. All of this new money has been created entirely from debt, and the whole process has been legally authorized by the initial reserve deposit of just $1,111.12, which is still sitting untouched at the central bank. What's more, under this ingenious system, the books of each bank in the chain must show that the bank has 10% more on deposit than it has out on loan. This gives banks a very real incentive to seek deposits in order to be able to make loans, supporting the general but misleading impression that loans come out of deposits. Now, Unless all the successive loans are deposited at the same bank, it cannot be said that any one bank got to multiply its initial high-powered money reserve almost 90 times by issuing bank credit out of nothing. However, the banking system is a closed loop. Bank credit created at one bank becomes a deposit in another, and vice versa. In a theoretical world of perfectly equal exchanges, the ultimate effect would be exactly the same as if the whole process took place within one bank. That is, the bank's initial central bank reserve of a little over $1,100 allows it to ultimately collect interest on up to $100,000 the bank never had.
If that sounds ridiculous, try this. In recent decades, as a result of steady lobbying by the banks, the requirements to make a reserve deposit at the nation's central bank have all but disappeared in some countries, and actual reserve ratios can be much higher than 9 to 1. For some types of accounts, 20 to 1 and 30 to 1 ratios are common. And even more recently, by using loan fees to raise the required reserve from the borrower, banks have now found a way to circumvent reserve requirement limitations entirely. So, while the rules are complex, the common sense reality is actually quite simple. Banks can create as much money as we can borrow. Despite the endlessly presented mint footage, government-created money typically accounts for less than 5% of the money in circulation. More than 95% of all money in existence today was created by someone signing a pledge of indebtedness to a bank. What's more, this bank credit money is being created and destroyed in huge amounts every day as new loans are made and old ones repaid. For people who are interested in checking out Money as Debt, which I recommend that you do, you might also be interested in listening to an interview that the Corbett Report conducted with Paul Grignon, the creator of that documentary, last year. That's available from our Interviews tab on the homepage, CorbettReport.com. I think that clip gives an adequate introduction to what the fundamental underlying cause of our current financial meltdown is, and that is that the monetary system is based on a complete fraud. What we commonly think of as money is in fact created out of nothing in the form of debt owed to banks owned by private shareholders. And this money, when it circulates through the system, then becomes the base from which even more money can be created out of nothing, again, in debt to private bankers. The underlying problem of our monetary system is that our money is created as debt. Indeed, debt is a fundamental part of the system that we're living in. One of the startling conclusions that we can draw from the information we just heard, as well as other information that's available about the Federal Reserve Banking System in the United States and other central banks throughout the world, including the Bank of England, is that, in fact, without debt there would be no money. This is a bizarre statement, and for those who understand its implications, a horrifying one, that in fact our entire economic existence is predicated on debt owed to bankers. It's very clear who our economic system is benefiting, and documentaries like Money as Debt and The Money Masters go into great detail about how this system arose and how it's being used for nefarious purposes. But once again, with the information from episode 5, episode 13, episode 30, and the information we just listened to regarding the monetary system that we're living in, we arrive at the same point that we arrived at in episode 53 of the Corbett Report podcast, which is to say, it's easy to define the problem that we are facing. It is easy to define what we oppose, but it is that much harder to define what we stand for or what we propose as a solution to these problems. Well, as the rather auspicious title, How to Fix the Economy, would suggest, today we're going to take a look at some proposals that people have put forward for just that, fixing the economy. And in this case, defining the fundamental problem with the economy as the problem of money as debt it's very clear what we have to do to fix the economy. We have to get rid of the system in which money is created as debt owed to bankers. Unfortunately, like many things, that is easier said than done. Although this is a vastly complex issue, and many greater minds than myself have been at work on this issue for decades and, indeed, centuries, from my perspective and from my research, I think very broadly, the solution to this problem can be broken down into two categories. 
On the one hand, we have the people who advocate the abolition of this system of credit and debt altogether. And on the other hand, we have those who favor taking over this system of money created out of nothing and using it instead of for private profit for private bankers to use it for the public good, to administer it through the government. Again, very broadly speaking, these are the two very broad categories of solution that have been proposed for this problem. So today, let's look at those ideas in a little bit greater detail. Now you'll remember the first category of solution is to abolish the idea of money as debt or money created out of nothing altogether. This is done by fixing the exchange of money to an actual commodity. That may sound complicated, but is actually very simple when you think of it in one of its most prevalent forms throughout history, the gold standard. The gold standard, of course, has been around for many, many centuries, and is in fact where the idea of paper money came from. Which is to say, long ago, paper money was nothing more nor less than a receipt for gold redeemable from the goldsmiths of a local town or principality. People would deposit their gold, receive these slips of paper as a receipt for the amount of gold they had deposited with the goldsmith, and eventually, finding that it was easier to carry around these pieces of paper than the gold itself, these pieces of paper were actually traded as if they were gold, that is to say, as if they were the same as the commonly accepted legal tender. Of course, this is where the goldsmiths got the idea of lending out more of these paper slips than they actually had gold to back up. And that's where the fractional reserve banking system that we talked about earlier came from. But it has been suggested that one of the solutions for the problem of money created out of nothing is simply to once again tie money down to a physical commodity like gold. In this system, each dollar that you have could be theoretically redeemed in gold at the bank. Obviously, to set the worth of a currency, you would only have to peg it to a certain amount of gold. For example, if one thirty-fifth of an ounce of gold was equal to one dollar, then thirty-five dollars would buy one ounce of gold. Or, more accurately, thirty-five dollars would be redeemable in one ounce of gold. Now again, I'm explaining this in very broad terms and only from my layman's perspective. But for a more detailed analysis of the gold standard, I would suggest my listeners go to the Mises Institute website. Ludwig von Mises, of course, was an Austrian economist who argued for libertarian economics and a return to the gold standard. And the so-called Austrian school of economics, which developed around Ludwig von Mises, has generally been recognized as one of the strongest proponents of a return to the gold standard. Listeners to the Corbett Report will be familiar with some of the people associated with the Mises Institute, if not the Institute itself. For example, Walter Block, who was interviewed in episode 53 of this podcast, is a prominent member of the Mises Institute. And Ron Paul has also been recognized by the Mises Institute for his work in advocating a return to the gold standard. G. Edward Griffin, who was also featured in episode 53, also advocates a return to an asset-backed currency. So right now, to get more information about the gold standard, let's turn to a clip from a different documentary. This one is entitled Fiat Empire, and it features such speakers as G. Edward Griffin and Ron Paul. This documentary is also highly recommended, as it does help to break down the problem in the current economic system, and also the solution being offered by the likes of the Mises Institute, namely the gold standard. Let's listen to an excerpt from Fiat Empire about the gold standard. The original intent of the Constitution is spelled out quite clearly, not only in the document, but in the immediate history that surrounds its formation. Now, Article 1, Section 10, Clause 1 limits the powers of the states. It says, no state shall coin money. States had coined money. Stops them from doing it. No state shall emit bills of credit. Now, that's one of those peculiar words. If you were living in that time, you knew what it meant. It meant, essentially, what we call paper money. No state shall 
bills of credit, which means that a state itself cannot create paper money, and then it can't do it indirectly by setting up some kind of a bank that's controlled by the state. Third provision in that clause is, no state shall make anything but gold and silver coin a tender in payment of debts. And notice the language, no state shall make anything but gold and silver coin, meaning states can and should make gold and silver coin a tender in payment of debts. But the historical background shows absolutely clearly that paper money was not going to be allowed at the national level or the state level. And the very interesting point here is that the same people who wrote the Constitution had been to a large extent in control of the states and of the Congress under the Articles of Confederation during the War of Independence. These people had emitted large amounts of paper money. The states did it, Congress did it. When that Congress did it, it was called the Continental Currency. And most people are familiar with the phrase, not worth a continental. Paper money depreciated so radically in value that it was essentially worthless. Those same people looked back at what they had done only a few years earlier and said, we're not going to do this anymore. I don't think that it's possible to impose from the top down even the constitutional system because no one out there now is used to using gold and silver as their money. So what needs to be done is to create a competitive system of currencies. Leave the Federal Reserve System there. Slowly, over six months or a year, take away some of its legal privileges, its legal tender privilege, its privilege as the only medium to pay government taxes, so forth and so on. And over on this side, create a gold and silver system. And then you will have competition between the two, the paper money price structure and the gold and silver price structure. And it will be a competition. What happened is in this competition, gold and silver would win out because in competition, the free market usually wins out over governmental intervention and special privileges. And that's the reason we have governmental intervention and special privileges, to keep the free market from winning out. And that's why they go to government, to ask for legal privileges, all right? So, that's the first problem. Now, the second problem is I don't see that happening through Congress because there are just too many loggerheads in Congress to get the thing started. So my suggestion is that it begin in some state, a small state, a state that probably has a certain amount of its taxes that it can hypothecate to gold. And if the system worked and more and more people were asking, then the state could expand the areas of taxation and bring more people into it. And eventually you would, if it worked, you would see the whole state, the state's monetary system, the government, state government, would be on a gold system. And then I would think as well you'd begin to see that spreading into the economy. Now, if that were to happen, then I think other states would look at this and say, well, that makes sense. Let's begin to move in that direction. You could look at it essentially as a monetary insurance policy. They don't have to go beyond 10%, but 10% gold holding is perfectly prudent. And if something were to happen in the economy, if there were to be a monetary crisis, banking crisis, then the state could rapidly expand the system because people would know how it operates. But the idea is to get the mechanism, as it were, on the table so that people can see how it works, why it works, what its benefits are. They don't have to be afraid of it. And arguments along the lines of there's not enough gold or silver in the world to do this will you know, that kind of thing will be uh, shown to be fallacious. Once again, Fiat Empire is a very good documentary, and I recommend that my listeners check it out. And again, you can find links to all of the documents and documentaries cited in today's episode by going to CorbettReport.com and clicking on the Documentation tab for today's episode. That clip then provided us some detail about the gold standard and why we need to return to it. But as I say, there are, broadly speaking, two categories of solutions to our current economic crisis and a return to a standard of an asset-backed currency such as the gold standard is only one of those solutions. The other solution is to take over the printing of money from the bankers and putting it in the hands of government for the public good. Again, this is a very broad category and has been argued in very different ways by very different people at differing times throughout history, so it would serve us well to get into some of the specifics. One of the people advocating this solution is Richard C. Cook, 
Richard Z. Cook has a long and impressive biography, including time spent in the U.S. Treasury Department, time spent with NASA, time spent in the Carter White House Administration, and the Food and Drug Administration. In fact, Richard C. Cook has had a long career in the federal government. These days, however, he is a public lecturer and an author who has written many articles on the subject of monetary reform. He wrote two articles for globalresearch.ca last year, which I highly recommend my listeners check out. And once again, I remind my listeners to check out those documents by going to the documentation list for today's episode. I recently had the opportunity to talk to Richard C. Cook at his home in the eastern United States. I'd like to play an extract from that interview with Richard C. Cook. For the full interview with Richard C. Cook, please go to the homepage CorbettReport.com and click on the Interviews tab. But right now, let's listen to an extract from this interview with Richard C. Cook. All right, so broadly speaking, what are the steps that needed to take this monetary reform to the next level and bring this system about? Well, the first thing that we have to deal with is the fact that our nation, under our uh, debt-based monetary system, is, is functionally bankrupt. We have right now uh, a debt overhang uh, on the producing economy, and if you if you count in there, household debt, student debt, individual debt, business debt, and government debt, somewhere in the neighborhood of $70 trillion. And so the first thing that we have to do is to restructure that debt and begin paying it down and uh, pay off the people that we owe money to. And uh, then, uh, having done that, we need to restructure our financial system so that the government is generating credit out of the uh, natural uh, uh, productive potential of the nation rather than allowing the banks to do it anymore. So there's a whole series of reform measures uh, that would allow to do this, uh, us to do this. Um, let me just refer to the uh, uh, model legislation that has been created by an organization in called the American Monetary Institute. Uh, we have what we call the American Monetary Act, which I contributed to and which can be found on the uh, AMI website, that would begin by bringing the Federal Reserve System back under the authority of the uh, executive branch of government uh, and begin to restructure the existing debt so that that debt can be paid down and essentially retired, and in some cases even canceled, because we have a tremendous amount of debt that simply ought to be canceled through a bankruptcy proceeding. I would put a lot of student debt into that category, where we are unfairly charging students an extraordinary amount of money on interest payments uh, to finance their college education. So a lot of that debt should be retired. Then the government needs to begin to create a new monetary system that is not introduced into circulation through bank debt, but by direct uh, issuances of currency by the federal government. Uh, there are really three ways of doing this that, uh, that I've written about. One I've already talked about, uh, and, and that is the national dividend, a, a annual cash payment uh, as uh, an individual share in the appreciation of the producing economy it's paid out to individuals as a dividend. Uh, a second way is by infrastructure financing uh, by the federal government. Uh, the federal government uh, in the past, if you look back at the Great Depression during the New Deal, had an organization called the Reconstruction Finance Corporation. And it was really an infrastructure bank that lent money at very low rates of interest for the physical economy of the U.S. It lent to state and local governments, School, system, school buildings were built with it. Hospitals were built with it. Uh, it went into farming. It went into certain types of industry. Uh, it was a low-cost way uh, of allocating credit to the physical uh, uh, economy through a federal infrastructure bank. Now, such a bank has been introduced uh, in Congress. The best uh, uh, legislation that I've seen on this has been introduced by Dennis Kucinich. Uh, it would be capitalized out of the cash uh, that the federal government has on balance 
with the Federal Reserve System, and it would um, provide zero-interest loans to state and local governments for infrastructure projects. On a sufficient scale, that would create a new currency for the United States. It would be a currency that comes into existence being backed by the physical economy of the United States and the physical infrastructure of the United States rather than bank loans. So that would be a second way to do it. The third way to do it would be through a monetary uh, uh, innovation that would be similar to the greenbacks during the Civil War period. The greenbacks were funds, paper money that were backed by gold, spent directly into circulation by the government to pay its expenses during the Civil War. Uh, it uh, was used to pay approximately 10% of the federal budget. Contrary to uh, what a lot of people say who are kind of uh, in favor of bank financing, it was not inflationary. And what most people don't understand is that greenbacks were part of the U.S. currency all the way up into the early part of the 20th century. In fact, legislation authorizing direct spending of government funds uh, by the greenback method still exists. It's, it's still on the books of the U.S. government, although all the greenbacks have been retired and don't exist any longer. But that would be the third method of funding. It would be direct spending by the government for expenditures that the government incurs in doing its its usual business. And that would be another way of introducing a different type of money into circulation. So these are three methods that would create a new monetary system for the United States. Now, we would still have some kind of a banking system because banks are useful and necessary for liquidity and commerce by using what we call the real bills doctrine, where the banks are used for financing everyday business and transactions of the business firms. But we don't need a banking system that rests on enormous speculative investments. We don't need a banking system that primarily is used to finance uh, consumption or that is used simply to inflate assets like we saw with the housing bubble, uh, with the equity bubble, previously with the dot-com bubble, those sort of things. Those are misuses of credit, misuses of the banking system. Uh, but if we were able to use these methods of government-introduced money uh, that I've cited, we would have a new monetary system for the United States, not based upon debt, but based upon the real productive values of the nation. Now, the Austrian School of Economics argues that replacing one form of fiat money with another form, whether it be under the hands of the bankers or the hands of a government, is uh, inevitably going to lead to an inflationary death spiral of that monetary uh, instrument. And they would argue vigorously for a return to the gold standard or gold-backed um, or asset-backed, at least, uh, monetary instruments. How do you, what do you say to that idea that printing money out of nothing is inevitably going to lead to an inflationary spiral? The Austrian School of Economics really is the same uh, financial system that we had uh, in the United States before the Civil War with the state system of uh, state-chartered banks. Now, this was supposedly on the gold standard, uh, these banks, because at that time you could take a paper currency that a bank issued into a bank and asked for gold in return. In fact, the banks used to kind of gang up on each other at that time. They would collect a lot of the bank notes from a bank and take those into the bank, demand gold, and when the bank obviously couldn't pay because there was never enough gold around to capitalize the entire monetary system, the bank would fold. Uh, the, the gold standard is a system that has always been the one favored by the big banking syndicates. Uh, we went into a gold standard in the latter part of the 19th century uh, when silver was demonetized. Silver was demonetized through a congressional uh, legislation in 1873. It was called the Crime of 73 because everybody knew what was going to happen was that the mo monetary system would deflate so much that the people who uh, needed to borrow money in order to survive, like farmers, business people, uh, small business, could not possibly keep up with uh, uh, payments on their loans because their uh, receipts from uh, what they were able to produce were deflating because of the collapse of the, uh, of the monetary system. And that's exactly what happened. That's why we had the depression of the 1890s 
that uh, William Jennings Bryan reacted to so strongly when he made that famous speech at the uh, uh, Democratic Convention in 1900, you shall not crucify mankind upon a cross of gold. And I would say to the Austrian banks, which really have a system more suited to 1830 than to a modern industrial system that has tremendous need for capital and for purchasing power, I would say the same thing uh, to the Austrians. You shall not crucify mankind upon a cross of gold. You have to have a system that is geared to the real productive values of the economy. And as long as you can maintain and regulate uh, the monetary system according to what the economy really is capable, capable of producing, and in order to do that, you need a tremendous amount of purchasing power because people need, uh, in an industrial economy, the ability to buy a home, to buy a car, uh, to buy the necessities of life, to educate their children. Uh, if you had a monetary system that could do that, you would not need a gold standard. Now, it does not mean that gold cannot serve a useful purpose as a hedge against inflation. Uh, it was used up until the 1970s to settle international debts, and it was the removal of that gold window that gave us the modern period of inflation that we have. But even back when we had the gold standard, as we had, for instance, in World War One, it did not prevent a tremendous inflation from taking place after World War One, simply because the banks revalued the currency, and they did it primarily to drive the old greenbacks and coinage out of circulation. So a gold standard does not protect you from inflation. Uh, the gold standard, uh, all it does is restrict the currency and prevent it from being flexible enough to accommodate the kind of uh, purchasing power that you need in a modern industrial economy. So uh, that, that, that's why the real uh, key to uh, keeping uh, an economy under control, a monetary system under control, is to gear the monetary supply to production, not to an artificial gold standard. Once again, Richard C. Cook's articles are highly informative, and I suggest you check out his website, richardccook.com, for more information about this author. Now, while I certainly agree with the ideas and the ideals of Richard C. Cook in arguing for his solution to the economic crisis, I think at the same time he's a bit quick to dismiss the idea of the Austrian school of economics as an archaic economic system, as if the idea of returning to gold was somehow archaic in and of itself. Now, this is a charge that has been answered by the Mises Institute and the Austrian School of Economics in previous occasions, and one example of that comes from Murray Rothbard, one of the most famous proponents of the Austrian School of Economics and one of the most famous libertarian philosophers in the 20th century. He wrote an essay called The Case for the 100% Gold Dollar, which is available for free on the Mises Institute website. It's also available for order in book form, and I suggest people follow the link again from CorbettReport.com documentation tab to find the link to that essay. But right now I'd like to listen to a short audio extract from that essay, and the audio of that essay is also available on the Mises Institute website. But let's listen to what our proponent of a return to the gold standard says to the people who think that the government should simply take over the printing of the money. The natural tendency of the state is inflation. This statement will shock those accustomed to viewing the state as a committee of the whole nation ardently dispensing the general welfare, but I think it nonetheless true. The reason seems to be obvious. As I have mentioned above, money is acquired on the market by producing goods and services, and then buying money in exchange for these goods. But there is another way to obtain money, creating money oneself without producing, by counterfeiting. Money creation is a much less costly method than producing. Therefore, the state, with its ever-tightening monopoly of money creation, has a simple route that it can take to benefit its own members and its favored supporters. And it is a more enticing and less disturbing route than taxes, which might provoke open opposition. Creating money, on the contrary, confers open and evident benefits on those who create and first receive it. The losses it imposes on the rest of society remain hidden to the lay observer. 
This tendency of the state should alone preclude all the schemes of economists and other writers for government to issue and stabilize the supply of paper money. Once again, I recommend my listeners go and listen to that essay in its entirety from the Mises Institute website, as it gets into a great deal of detail about the gold standard system and how it compares to the system of simply printing money to suit the whims of the government. So far, very broadly speaking, we have defined the two main ideas being proposed to combat the system of private control of the monetary system by a small group of bankers, namely returning the monetary system to an asset backing like gold, or simply taking over the printing of the money and printing as much money as needed for the public good without, of course, doing the harm of inflation. At the same time, I can see both the pros and the cons of each of these methods. Of course, the gold standard is desirable insofar as it limits the ability of any group, whether bankers or government, to print as much money as they feel like, which would obviously be the political temptation if we ever brought the powers of the Federal Reserve back within the purview of the government. And no matter what the good intentions of those running the system are, the temptation would always be to print too much money. With the gold standard, of course, the amount of money in circulation is limited by the physical amount of gold in the vaults. Of course, the gold standard relies on the belief that the gold will not be tampered with, the gold reserves will not be fiddled around with, that it will be a completely transparent process, and even then, it relies on simply the amount of gold in existence to supply all of the money needed for the economy. The question then becomes, how does the economy grow? How does new money get added to the system? And admittedly, in this system, the only way to add money to the system is to find new gold. Gold mining then becomes an actual integral part of growing the economy, which seems to be leaving things up to chance a little bit too much in the growth of the economy. Now, as I say, I have come at this from a layman's perspective, and I have left out a great deal of detail involved in these arguments. So again, I urge you to check out the sources of what I've been looking at today to come to some of your own conclusions. And just for the record, the Murray Rothbard essay, which we listened to an extract of just a moment ago, contains a response to that fear that the only way the economy will be able to grow is for new gold to be added to it. But I'm not sure if I'm convinced by the argument offered by Rothbard in that essay, although that probably just means I haven't quite understood his argument. Again, as I say, this is an extremely complex issue and there are many different points of view. But hopefully I've got you pointed in some of the directions that you can be looking into to come to some of your own conclusions on this matter. Before finishing today, though, I'd just like to go over a couple of points the first being that that documentary which we listened to an extract to at the beginning of today's episode provides its own solution to the current economic problem and the problem of monetary reform. Their solution is similar to Cook's in that it offers the idea that governments should simply take over the printing of money and that that printing of money should not be tied to a physical asset like gold. However, money as debt provides a rather innovative solution, the solution being that all money created by the government would be invested into long-term infrastructure projects. The money that the government creates to make these projects happen would then, in a way, be backed up by the physical infrastructure created in the projects themselves. I personally think this is the best solution that I've heard so far because it combines the best of both solutions. The other thing which I would like to draw my listeners' attention to is the Monetary Reform Act. The Monetary Reform Act was drawn up by Patrick Carmack, the producer of that excellent documentary, The Money Masters, which was cited in Episode 5 of the Corbett Report, and which I once again urge my listeners to watch. The Monetary Reform Act is in and of itself a thing of beauty, in the way that they suggest getting rid of the fractional reserve banking system, retiring the debt, and bringing the entire money creation process within the purview of government, all with one broad stroke. 
However, I fear that it also leaves too much power in the hands of government to go on to continue printing money, which, as the Mises Institute and the Austrian School of Economics point out, will inevitably lead to an inflationary death spiral of the currency. Again, as I say, this is a very complicated subject, and I urge you to do your own research into these matters. But to help you with that research, I am currently scheduling an interview with Patrick Carmack, the producer of The Money Masters, which I hope to conduct in the coming week. This interview will likely not make it onto the podcast, so once again I urge my listeners to go and subscribe to our interviews feed so you can make sure to get all of the interviews conducted by The Corbett Report. As always, I suggest you go out there, do the research for yourself, and come to your own conclusions. That's it for today's episode. Thank you for joining me this week, and join me again next week for another edition of The Corbett Report. This system is deeply ingrained. So is the educational and media silence on the subject. Years ago, a Canadian Deputy Prime Minister surveyed scores of non-economists, both highly educated professionals and common-sense people on the street, and found that not one of them had an accurate understanding of how money is created. In fact, it's probably safe to say that most people, including the frontline employees of banks, have never given the matter a moment's thought. Have you?